Uh, if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. When was the last time you heard a sermon in Revelation? Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The, if you're trying to use one of the Bibles that are right under your seat, it's on page 668, and it says this. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Um, Father, we come to your word because we know that in your word are the words of life. So we thank you for the fact that you've spoken to us, Lord. And now we pray. Uh, that your word would be made plain, Father. That's all that we hope for. Uh, That's all that my job is to do up here, Lord, not to come up with anything else, but just to repeat the words that you have said that are meant to provide us with assurance, hope, and comfort. And so I pray that we would have all of these things, Lord, as we hear your word today. So would you speak? Uh, Be with us, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel free to take your seat. I love the church. Not just this church right here, but the church, the church that God has put together the group of Christians, far and wide, white, black, rich, poor, old, young, the witty ones that we like to be around and the weird ones that we like to stay away from. I love the church, the people that Jesus Christ died for and saved and put them together in a family. I love the church. Um, Sometimes my Love for the church can be mistaken because I'm a pastor. And folks say, well, of course you would love the church. You're a pastor. As if being a pastor of a church is like signing an endorsement deal with Nike. Ah, well, of course you'd wear those because you're signed. Uh, But I don't love the church because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because of the great love that I have for God's church. It's not just like there's nothing else in the world that I could do, uh, but there's nothing else in the world that I would want to do than to pastor God's church. I love the church 
but I know that the world that we live in doesn't necessarily share that opinion. And I say that because critiques of God's church abound. In the world that we live in, I don't know if y'all saw this last week, but the New Yorker wrote an article about how Chick-fil-A is trying to colonize New York with all their Christian chicken and worldviews and things like that. And, And it was just this real nasty piece. But what you and I know and what we've seen is that in the world that we live in, right, think of societal outrage from, or outrage from racism to sexual abuse to sexism to poverty. And what you'll quickly find out is that as our world starts to take off on the runway to try to shoot down all of these things, it's not long before the church finds itself in their crosshairs. Think of the presidential election that took place in the fall of 2016 and the claims of racism and a lack of love. And think of how much the church, especially the evangelical church, was in the news as the ones, depending on what side you were on, to be blamed for it. Think of the Me Too movement that started with Harvey Weinstein and people in Hollywood starting to come out about ways that he had abused them. Think of how quickly that turned to the church. And then folks start to rehearse the Catholic church and all their abuse. And then in the church that we live in now, what we see is a bunch of high-profile pastors starting to step down as folks just started to talk about sexual abuse. And they turn and say, yo, it's in the church too. You can talk about the oppression of women. You could talk about the problems of poverty and people quickly turn to well if only the church would do what they would do then we wouldn't have these problems in the church. Societally the church is in folks crosshairs. People have critiques and some that are rightly so for the church. But it's not just outside of the church. It's inside of the church as well. Right? That there's those of us, and we've met folks that have said, I'm bitter, I'm frustrated, I'm burnt out, I can't grow, I can't trust because of my time in the church. Because of a pastor, because of this church, because of that church. And what we can find is that although these critiques of the church, some of them, most of them at times are true, critiques can tend to bring confusion because it paints caricatures of two, two sides of folks. So now as all these critiques are starting to uh, be raised up against the church, you find yourself having to pick a side. Am I for the church or am I uh, against the, the church? People that will bring the critiques of the church are often villainized. Those that are quick to leave are villainized by those that have chosen to stay. Or those that have chosen to stay are looked at naively from those that have chosen to leave. Not realizing that those that have chosen to leave and critique the church, those that have chosen to stay and try to build up the church, I think often both of those groups want the same thing. And do you know what they want? They want the church to do better. That a critique against the church and a desire to leave 
is a subtle way, even if they don't realize it, of saying, I'm disappointed. I expected that the church would actually be the hope of the world, and it's not, I'm done. Those that stay feel that same thing, and they say, well, I don't want to be too hard on the the church. I know that we're all flawed, and so what you have is people that will leave, and they're too harsh in their critiques against the church, and people that will stay and are too soft. This is where this series was birthed out of. For the next two months, what we're going to do is look at Jesus Christ's word to the church. And the reason why we're going to take his words and look at these seven letters in this book is because uh, the people who critique the church the best are those whose commitment to it has been the most unwavering. Revelation 1, verse 4 through 6, John says this, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you, look, From the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. We'll get to what that means later. Look, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, look, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. So what John's saying is Jesus is writing to these churches, and he's qualified to both celebrate and critique, because this is not just somebody from the outside that's trying to poke holes. This is somebody who had holes poked in his hands, in his side, and in his feet, who died and got up from the dead for this church. So if there's anybody that has a platform to critique the church, to tell the church what it should be doing, it's him. He didn't just die for us, but look, but and he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The church in our work, we have work to do as a church, and Jesus is going to be the one that's leading the charge, saying we as the church should do better. And for that, we're going to spend these next few weeks in Revelation, And because we're going to spend time in this book, permit me, if you will, to spend more time than I would at the front just trying to set a little bit of background. Revelation is kind of like, um, you know, that girl in high school or that guy uh, that people were intimidated by, so they just kind of left them alone. Um, and they didn't ask them out because they feel like, ah, I don't really want to uh, go there. And as a result... They miss out on a bunch of good stuff. Revelation is an amazingly encouraging book, but we tend to think, man, I don't know. There's like dragons and eyes and four-headed creatures, and then there's bulls, and what about the trumpets and the sky? And and so folks say, I'll just leave that alone. 65 books are just good enough for me. (laughs) But I want you to know, look, This is a book written by the Apostle John to seven Asian churches that found themselves in this world where they doubted the sovereignty of God. Is God really in control? They were threatened 
by the prominence of evil that existed in their world. Are we really safe? And they doubted the influence of the church in the world. Can we really win? And for those that doubt God's control, this book is to assure you that the Jesus that was crucified in the Gospels is seated in heaven in victory. We don't serve a crucified Savior. We serve a risen Lord who is seated right now with all power. People that would question the influence of the church in the world, what the church could do, this book is provided to give us hope. And people that fear the power of evil in this world, this book is meant to remind you that in the end, God wins. Here's a brief outline of this book. Chapter 1, John starts off and he sees a vision of God. He's exiled by himself. The rest of the disciples have been brutally martyred and killed for their faith. John has been exiled and put on an island on the Lord's Day, on a day much like today. He sits down wanting to spend time with the Lord, and instead he gets a vision, not of a God in the grave, but of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne with all power. Chapters 2 and 3, we get this view of earth, and we get what Christ is saying to the, the church, his celebrations of the church, as well as his critiques of the church. Chapters 4 and 5, we leave from earth, and now we go to heaven, and we see in heaven right now, all creation up there is praising God. So we don't see a God that's defeated. We see somebody victorious. Chapter 6 through 18 is what most people debate about. Is this a prediction of what's going to come? Or is this an ongoing struggle between the forces of good and evil? Regardless of where you stand, 6 to 18 is this fight. It's this battle. But we only read 6 through 18 after we read the fact that in chapters 4 and 5, Jesus is sitting on the throne. So you get to 19, and what you find out is that one day Christ will come back to set up shop on the world. Chapters 20 through 22 is Jesus makes everything right. He wins at the end. So if you want to know what this book is about, it's about a risen Jesus that is going to come back and set things right. He wins. As long as we can agree on that, then we can start to talk about chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 are chapter... The one starts off with this. Jesus is walking amongst these lampstands. Um, and lampstands in, 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 uh, in this book, they use that term as what's called a synecdoche. A synecdoche is a fancy word that all that that means is you talk about the parts of something as a sign of what the, the whole is. So it's like this. So if I say all hands on deck, or if I say somebody is a hired hand, what I'm not saying is that I'm paying you just for the use of your hands. What I'm not saying is there's a deck up here and everybody puts their hands on deck. Hands are just a part of the whole. It's saying that everybody's getting to work. When it talks about Christ walks among these lampstands, in the temple, the lampstand was a piece of furniture that was used and the priest would come in and he would light these lamps and the light on top of the lamp would be a sign of the presence of God that 
dwelt there. So when it says that Jesus walks among these lampstands, it's just saying that the risen, victorious Christ walks amongst his church. That the church is a lampstand, is not the light on the lampstand. The light shows off to the world. The light is God's presence. The church is uniquely positioned in the world to give off the presence of Christ, to project him, to display him. And what Jesus does is he walks among the the church to trim the little wick down to make sure that this little light is shining, to make sure that no lights are being hidden underneath a bushel. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it starts off and it says this. Write to the angel or the messenger. So this, that word could be used for the pastor of the church, the one that's going to bring this text to the church. Or it even could be used for um, the personified embodiment of the church. So to treat the church as if it's a uh, entity in and of Itself, Regardless of what that means, the most important thing is what takes place here. Look, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's the best rule of Bible interpretation. All right. Y'all may want to write this down or keep this. Do you know the best way to interpret the Bible It's to use the Bible. We don't have to look anywhere else for what this means, right? Have you ever seen a, like, map, and on the map there's, like, all of these signs, and you really don't know what the signs are, and then in the bottom right-hand corner there's this, like, map key, and it's like, oh, that cross means that that's a house because I see there at the bottom. Uh, Jump up to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, I heard this from a preacher friend of mine, and I think it's so true. And so let me just tell you, over the course of these next seven weeks, uh, bring your Bible and look in your Bible. If you do not look in your Bible while we're up here, you'll be incredibly bored because I'm not going to say much that doesn't come out of uh, this Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one in a seat. underneath you or next to you, that's our gift to you. Take that home. 20 says this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when it talks about the lampstand here, do you know what he talks about? Churches. Anybody that would say it's anything else has forsaken the key that's right here. The best way to interpret the Bible is to use the Bible. And so it says this, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Um. And again, a a lot of this is background. I promise that I'm going to get to the next point. Each of these letters that we're going to go through the next week is going to follow the same pattern. It's going to use a unique name for Christ. That's how it's going to start things off. There's going to be a word of celebration, 
a word of correction, and then a promise that's there at the end. So as he starts here, he doesn't just say Jesus. He doesn't just use a generic name for Christ, but he specifically says the one who holds these stars in his hand and the one who walks among the golden lampstands. You know why he does that? To give us unique insight into the character of God, and it's going to be insight that this church needs. So the picture that he paints at the front is not this God that reigns sitting as a boss on the top floor in a CEO chair, pushing a intercom, raining down orders for the church to do. It's a picture of this God who in his right hand, in his hand of power, has authority. But his authority is met with intimacy. He walks among his church. He's uniquely present, not just with Christians. He's uniquely and especially present with his church. Do you know why that's important? It's important. Because you and I need to be remembered. You and I need to remember that Jesus is uniquely aware of your suffering. He is not a distant God. He's not a God that's far off. He's not a God that somebody has to bring him news of what's wrong in your life. He's a God that is very, very close. Walking around with his clipboard, making notes of things that are wrong. He's the same God that in Genesis 1-2, when it says that God made the world and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, that God himself was there when the earth was formless and void, ready to fix things before anybody asked him to. Do you know what that means? It means your prayers are not the things that causes God to get to work, as if he wouldn't work unless you hadn't prayed. He's actively working right now, providing all of us breath, something that very few of us had asked for. This is a God whose concern for your problems predates your awareness of the actual problem. And so as John starts off with this church in this town, he's saying you need to have this specific knowledge about Jesus, and that's a word for you and I. Y'all, we can't be content with general knowledge of God. What I'm not saying is that we all have to go to seminary, but what I am saying is if you ever want peace in this world, you better put your face in this book and learn about the God of the Bible. So what he's doing when he talks about Christ, it's not just some guy that died on the cross for our sins, although he did. But it is God himself that comes in, walks um, among us. From the time we started this church, we reserve Wednesday nights to get a group of folks in here to study the Bible. It would be a good use of your time to come if you feel like you don't know who God is to study the Bible. Another quick thing really quick, is this one of the ways that you can get to know God, especially at this church, um, is to show up on time. And so here's what I mean by by that. Uh, Don't treat church like the movies, right? Where it's like, I'm late, but I've seen the previews before, so just as long as I get there right before it starts and I'm fine, or right as soon as it's done, it's not a 
Marvel movie, so I don't have to stay past the credits. I'm going to come late and I'm going to leave early. Listen, just to give you a heads up, the way that we uniquely design this service here, when we take time and we pray, is the very first prayer is always what we call a prayer of adoration. And what that is, is we don't thank God for things that he's done. We praise him for who he is. And so what it is, is somebody comes up on stage and they just lead us in a meditation of God and who he is so that you and I all know who it is that we're talking to when we come in. And you miss out on that if you don't come on time. My people, let's break the stereotypes, right? (laughs) Come on. Let's be here on time. Don't treat church like the movies. Last one real quick, and I promise we are going to move on. Um, Don't be content on an island. John was forced on an island. He was forced there. Everybody else that he rolled with was crucified, beheaded, or burned alive. And they took him and said, well, we're going to let you grow old, but you're going to grow old by yourself. And the first thing that he does is he writes what Christ says is, hey, tell these, not just to a group of folks, tell them the churches. Don't sleep on the ordinary ways that God intends to encourage and to build us up. The way that God has determined to keep Christians Christian in the world is by having them plugged in and connected to a church. It does not have to be this one. We're already getting kind of full and we don't have an intention to add another service here because we feel like there are plenty of good churches in Atlanta for us to feel like we've cornered the market. We haven't. There are plenty of good ones. If you don't like this one, please come up to me or somebody else and we will help you find one. Christians should be in churches. That's all the background stuff. So what John does is he writes to this city, Ephesus. And in case you look at the Bible and you think, I'm so distant from these times, they don't have the same struggles like we do. Uh, Let me just paint you a picture of what Ephesus was like. Ephesus was the greatest city of their time. If they had a real housewives back then, they would have the real housewives of Ephesus. Look, let me show you just how like the city of Atlanta it was. They were a commercial hub. So they had this port where if you wanted to go anywhere, you would have to go through that port. We have an airport where if you want to go anywhere, you connect through Atlanta. They were a political center. So while everybody else was ruled, they were this this free state that had their own coins that really set the trajectory for, for what the rest of Asia did at the time. Atlanta is the same way the birthrights of the civil the birthplace of the civil rights movement. It was a city of influence back then. Religiously, it was the cream of the crop. The Apostle Paul started this church here. Then Timothy pastored this church. Then John 
stood this church. So it was a city religiously full of these heavy hitters. But it was also this city that had um, this huge shrine or temple to the god Artemis or Diana. She was the fertility god. Being that god, what took place is folks said that they had thousands of priestesses that actually served as temple prostitutes, uh, which means that this was a city whose large part of their income and economy was made off of the sex trade. Tell me that ain't like the city that we live in right now. And this church is facing those same pressures. What do we do? Is our church going to do good in the world? Is our church going to have any influence? We have a whole bunch of work to do. They're probably filled at their times with a bunch of folks that says, the church needs to fill in the blank. And this is what Christ says to the church. The very first thing that he does is he tells them, good job, and he commends their activity. Verse 2 says this, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. Here's what I love about what Christ says and why I says he's the one that's uniquely designed to critique the church. Because in critiquing the church, the church is valuable to him. He bought the church with his own blood. Out of all the metaphors that God's word could use to talk about the church, it chooses to call it his bride. So as he talks about things that they need to to do, he doesn't jump right in and yell at them for what they've done wrong, but he starts with word of praise and encouragement. And hear this. People that are often in most danger of error are people that often need the most encouragement. And so what Christ does is he starts off not with a list of things that they've done wrong, but, but what they've done right. And so he starts on and says, hey, the first thing is y'all can't tolerate evil people, and that's good. Let me explain what that means. This is not him saying you as a Christian go into a world of folks that are not Christian and make them act Christian. So it's not saying you're at dinner, somebody curses, and you stand up and protest and walk out and say, I can't be a part of that. To live in the world that we live in, there has to be a certain tolerance of evil if we're ever going to get to a place where we can really give people the hope of the gospel. So it's not him trying to get a worldly world to act more Christian. When he talks about these evil people, He's specifically referring to not folks that don't claim to be Christians, but folks who claim to be Christians but are really not. And so he says, look, 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 y'all have done a good thing in that in y'all's church, y'all have been committed 
to this truth. And y'all don't want people that say that they're Christian, but really aren't, to go around parading as if they are so that the outside world sees the things that they've done wrong and they say, I want no part of that God. So he praises them for the good work that they've done. Look, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. This church was a group of folks that weren't pushovers. This was a group of folks who actually knew God's word so much so that when somebody stood up and started to tell them, hey, Christ has set us free. He died on the cross for all of our sins. So what that means is, well, yeah, we still sin here and there, but God's not concerned with that sin. The freedom that we have in Christ is freedom for you to go and live how you want to. That it was a church full of folks that could say, that ain't right. Nah, that's not what God says. And if you live your life indulging in Christian freedom and not pursuing God himself, then that's only going to lead people to hell. That's not right. And it's this church that was committed to stand up for the truth. It was a church that was not scared to have somebody that was a part of their body and to say, I know that you say you're a Christian. I know that you say you love the Lord with all of your heart, but based on the way that I've seen you treat your wife, I don't care how many times you've prayed that prayer. If you're unfaithful to your wife, don't tell me or the rest of the world how faithful you are to God unless you turn from that. And it's this church that had this commitment to the truth. It's the thing that for the past three years we've tried to build inside of our church. And Jesus is praising them for that, not just for the fact that they've done that, but verse 3, look, and I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, look, and have not grown weary. Let me tell you this, holding a standard of holiness is hard work. Do you know why it's hard work? Because often the people that do their best to try to hold this standard, not of perfection, but of repentance. We're all going to mess up. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not one will mess up and one doesn't. The difference is a Christian will mess up and say, I've messed up. I've sinned against the holy God. God, will you forgive me? Church, will you come alongside and help me? A non-Christian will say, ah, well, it's not that bad. Don't judge me. And so what he's saying, it's hard work because as soon as you start to hold that standard, those that hold the standard of holiness are scrutinized. And those that are rejecting the standard of holiness are sympathized with. This is so clear, even in the life of our church. So from time to time, right, based on God's word, a church has to practice what's called discipline. And that is for somebody that professes to be a Christian, but does not live in a way that is becoming of a Christian and chooses, I don't want to hold on to Christ and his forgiveness. I'd much rather hold on to my sin that we as a church have to say, uh, we're not going to hold you hostage. 
We want to hold you accountable to the profession that you've made, but we have to let you go. There was one instance in our church uh, where we had to do that with a guy that was a part of this church. Um, and the crazy thing was, he agreed with what we, we did. He said, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Well, at the end of that time, um, uh, we talked to him a few months later and find out that after that meeting, somebody comes up to him and says, man, that's messed up what they did to you. And what he said was, messed up. That's the right thing. And so here you have the person that was willing to let go of what God wants him to do, gaining the sympathy and the people that have tried to do what's right being scrutinized. And so what he's saying, yo, it's hard work to maintain this standard of truth, but Jesus is saying, y'all have done it. It's good, great job. Look, look here at verse 4, though. It starts off with this word, but. That word, but, is a contrast. And he says this, but, I have this against you. Hear this. The presence of celebration doesn't have to mean the absence of correction. You do yourself a disservice if you only find yourself friends with or drawn to people that are rejoicing the things that you do right and you avoid everybody that confronts things that you do wrong. Jesus uniquely comes in and gives them both. Because he's not trying to condemn anybody. He's saying you've done a good job, but what you've done is not quite enough. It hasn't hit the mark. Keep going. I'm critiquing you because I love you. And he says this, but I have this against you. Church, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. His correction is this. Y'all work hard. Y'all labor, but in your labor, you've lost love. And Christian labor is not a substitute for Christian love. He tells this church, you're doing a whole lot of work. You're protecting the truth. You're a church of truth. You love sound teaching. You love right teaching. You love verbs parsed. You love to study the book of revelations that nobody else studies. You take up those challenges But your Christian labor is not a substitute for Christian love. It's not contradictory to rejoice in things that folks have done right and to correct them at the same time. Jesus does this with Peter. At the same dinner, he says to him, Peter, you've got it. Flesh and blood have not revealed to you that I'm the Son of Man. And then a few minutes later, he tells Peter... Get behind me, Satan. So Peter goes from 
I'm the man to folks like he's a clown. Jesus does this with the church. He seeks to correct our first love. And look at what he says about love. Not just that you've lost it. Not just that you've misplaced it. But the words that he'll use is this. You have abandoned your love. You've been so concerned with working hard and doing the right thing that you have abandoned your love. To abandon something is different than to misplace something. To abandon is all about the value of the object and the attitude that you have which you left it, right? So if I misplace my keys or my phone, I don't say I abandoned my phone because it really is, I mean, it's keys and it's phone. You abandon principles. You abandon people, families, kids. So when Jesus says, that this church has worked hard. He says, you have abandoned this love. What does he mean by love? Is it love for God? Have they stopped praying? Have they stopped reading? Is it love for Christians? Have they stopped serving the church? Or is it love for the outside world? They're not actively involved in pushing back darkness that exists in the world? I think it's best to think of it as all three. That as soon as we start to parse out love, that's the thing that leads us to error. To think that I can love God and not love my brothers and sisters is to misunderstand love. Love for God fuels our love Outside And our love outside shows that we really have love for God. And so I think John right here talks about all three. And the reason why I, I think that he talks about all three is because of the consequence at the end, right? He says that if you don't get back to this first love, here's what's going to take place. I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? What he's saying is that if you don't have love, this lampstand, this church that's supposed to show the light of Christ to the world, if you don't have love, I'm going to close down the doors of this church because a loveless church is a contradiction. A church of folks that are committed to Christ's truth but don't show Christ's love is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It paints a bad picture of who Christ is. It's an oxymoron that's as absurd as a humorless comedian or a meatless burger or a happy vegan. All of those things. Just you can't take those things. And let me tell you, yo, and I want you to hear this. We live in a world of substitutions where people think that you can put in something for something else and you can't taste the difference. We live in a world where substances that have had no pulse are grind up and called a burger. We live in a world where peas and almond are called milk. We live in a world (laughs) where there is no pig, but it's called bacon. And let me tell you, 
If it doesn't have a pulse, it is not a burger. If it didn't come from a cow or a goat, it is not milk. If it didn't come from a pig, church, hear this. It's not, it's not bacon. But Jesus goes on and says this. No, no, listen, listen, listen. But if it doesn't have love, it's not a church. It's a pretender of the worst sort. How can a church represent a holy God if they don't show that this holy God in his righteousness didn't just cast people out when they should have been casted out? But this God who was righteous and in his righteousness could have sent everybody away instead chose reconciliation on his own terms. This righteous God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Jesus died on the cross for our sin. This this righteous God didn't beat people up so much when they were wrong. And not just wrong in their beef and their fighting. Wrong in that they have him up on a cross and they are actively killing somebody that didn't do anything. And do you know what he does? He doesn't list out all the ways that that they're wrong, but he loves them by taking it on the chin and praying to God for their forgiveness. And a church that doesn't do that is no church. And I just want you all to know, and I want you to hear this. It's good to hear that. It's good to talk about that on this day on each week that we gather. But one thing that you see is that, you know, Christian love, our love for God and for one another, it cools off very quickly. It cools off quicker than when you unplug an iron. The world that we live in, it's not just a dark world, it's a cold world. Take out a warm cup of coffee on a cold day, and what you'll find out is that warmth doesn't last for long. Take a Christian and put them in a cold world, and what you'll find out is that that Christian love doesn't last long. So how do we respond? If love is the thing that causes us to be a church, if love is the ingredient that God wants to use to display himself to the world, but you and I tend to lose our love, it cools without us even trying. How do we get back that love? And here's what I love is that Jesus' critique is not devoid of a plan. He tells them three things that we do. And I'm going to go through these three things and I'm done. Remember, repent, and return. It's right there in verse 5. Remember then how far you have fallen. Literally, he says, book a ticket and revisit the past. There's certain things in our lives that uh, we would do well to forget because they're the glory days and they're gone. Your 18-year-old metabolism is not going to come back. You cannot eat pizza every day and get on a treadmill and think that you're going to have that six-pack. It's not going to work. Your 18-year-old ability guys, to get out on the court and to start playing ball without stretching is not going to come back. Many an Achilles have testified that it's gone. Get the Bengay, 
put it on, be okay with smelling like that for your health. But Jesus tells this church and tells us, remember how far you've fallen. That that first love that we had when the Lord saved us is not one of those things. It is not a thing that we can't get back. The first love is not like that. The work that God did in our souls isn't, it's not like that. As Christians, we have to grow in knowledge, right? So we go and we study and there's things that we didn't know and we spend all our time studying and we get to a place where we know more than we once did. Love isn't like that. From the time that we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, what he does is like that. He changes our hearts. We're from the front door of this thing. You and I were gripped with this love and we ought to think of our first love as these glory days. We're actually to remember what it was like. And so you take time and you sit back And you think and you remember, what was it like when I first came into contact with God's grace for me? Sit back and think. What are the things that you were drawn to? Me and Richard have walked together since the fall of 02, freshman roommates in college. And I remember seeing Richard uh, go from a pagan to a Christian over Christmas break to some revote to. And he came back and and 15 years ago from that time, it it was like nobody had to tell us. It was not a chore. We spent the rest of our time at Baylor pleading with friends that we knew, trying to help them learn the love of Jesus. It was not a chore to pray. It was not a chore to keep our face in the books and to study the Bible. We got our first apartment. Richard had this little uh, 20-inch like TV with a DVD and a VHS player. And the first thing that we did was we sat Indian style on the ground watching tapes of people explain God's word and just writing notes there in the summer. What was it like when you first met the Lord? You know, as I had to sit back and think, we used to, Richard uh, met Amanda way back then. Richard liked his wife way back then. And what we used to do, I mean, we used to hang out at their house all the time. But one of the, we would come back, and we knew that we were going to go there, but you know, we loved the Lord so much that we just said, Yo, man, how am I going to go and try to spend quality time with this girl that I love and not spend time with the one that loved me? And we would literally go into our room and close the door for an hour. And we didn't get outside for anything less than an hour, praying and reading and loving God. And it was not a chore, and that love spilled over to the point where I, I had a homeboy that I grew up with, and You know, I was spending time trying to help him learn Jesus and all that he did for him. And all of my homeboys were getting ready to go to this uh, beach party that took place in South Texas. 
taxes. And as I talked to him on the phone, it was clear that he just didn't have an alternative. So what I said is, man, brother, I will drive down to Houston from Baylor and pick you up and come back. So I got off work on a Friday at 6 p.m., took a three-hour drive down to pick him up, to come back. We got back at midnight, spent the weekend with the people that we would gather with as a church. And then on Sunday after church, I drove him back home and then came back and it wasn't even a thing. And that's not to big up what I've done. It's just saying, oh, this is, this is the love that God puts in our hearts. And we all have stories of what we did back then. But it was back then. And so what he says here is, no, remember the exceptional things that you did back then that were ordinary, that you wouldn't even do without a second thought. And what I love is this letter is written to a church. So he's not just saying you. He's saying, no, us as a church, remember. And this past week, every week, this time, this year, is a tough one for me. One of the things that has linked in my mind has been the birth of this church and the death of my brother. Three years ago, April the 14th, my brother died. Me and Richard are in Orlando. And I think that was the first time, though I'd been a pastor for years, that was the first time I really felt what it was to be loved and embraced by a church. I'm used to asking folks how they are, how they're doing, what's going wrong, how can I pray for you. But one thing that you find out as a pastor is people tend to assume that you're okay. April the 14th, my brother dies. I get the news. Richard is with me. And so through the night, he drives me back home six hours to Orlando while I'm crying, not knowing what to do. My wife and I get back home. We book the first plane ticket that we can to Memphis. And I get to Memphis. And do you know who I see? People from this church already there. And throughout the whole thing. And then this past week, I go back at my phone and I'm looking at pictures of before this church started April of 2015. And I'm remembering all of us that were in this room praying about what we hoped that God would do. Not just in this church. Not just up here on a stage preaching and the truth that comes. But we prayed about a community of people out there knowing what God was like. And then we got a church building. And then more and more folks start to come in. And then in all the work, we lose sight of what God has really called us to do. And now we're complaining about, I don't like the music. We're complaining about, I don't like the preaching. We're complaining about, I don't like him or her. And we're fighting about all of these things that don't mean anything. I imagine if Jesus was writing to us, he would say, man, I'm grateful for your labor, but this I have against you. You've lost your first love. You've substituted your Christian labor and your hard work for love. And so the first thing that he tells us to do is 
remember the same way that a couple on the brink of divorce would pull out their wedding album and say, remember how happy we were back then? That you and I as a church should find ways to continue to do that, to look back and remember. As we look back at where we were, we look at now, and we embrace the fact that we don't have to pretend. I sat up here telling you all this stuff about what I used to do, how I used to spend time in the world, how I used to spend time in prayer, not to big up myself, but to say that was back then. That's not true of me right now. So we can all be honest and say that we leak, we lose that love. Remember, not just remember the good times, but remember how far you've fallen and then do what? Repent. All right, listen. It's not saying remember what you used to do and immediately go back and try to do all of those things. Heart problems are not fixed with your hands. You cannot, by the strength of your own hands, change your heart. So if you're here saying, I remember what it was like, but that ain't me right now, the very first thing that you do is you fall on your face and you repent. And you are reminded that Jesus Christ is the only one that can change hearts and Jesus Christ is willing to change hearts. It's you and I confessing our sin because that's what it is, sin. It's not making excuses. It's not saying, well, I used to do it back then, but now my circumstances have changed. Well, I used to do it back then, but that was because I was in a church of folks that I knew. I used to do it back then, but that was because my life scenario was conducive to being able to spend time with the Lord. Well, I used to do it back then, but that was because I wasn't as busy at work. I used to do it back then, but now I'm in a new life stage and things are impractical. I used to to do it back then, but now I have a ministry that takes me outside. And for that, I would say... Intimacy with Jesus is your ministry. We don't make an excuse. We call it sin, knowing that our hearts are going to find any way that they can to justify not loving God. And when we call it for what it is, individually as sin, Corporately as a church, not just praying to God, but confessing to one another. What we find is that God actually does change our hearts. But he doesn't just say remember and repent. Lastly, he says return and do the works that you did at first. Here's what faith is. Faith is not I cry out to God and I ask him to change my heart. And I sit around and wait until I'm confident that he changed my heart. And then I go and obey. Faith is, I'm crying out for God to forgive me of my sin and to change my heart. And then faith says, I'm going to go back and do the things that I did at first, trusting that God will change my heart as I actively obey and do the things that he's called me to do. Listen, this doesn't come apart from time. There is no quality time without quantity time. 
you cannot schedule quality time. You can't say between 3 and 3.15, I'm going to have quality time. It doesn't work that way. It comes with you and I spending time in our face, on the floor, but, but, but for the Lord, and making a priority to spend time with his people. And as we remember, and as we repent, and as we return, look at the promise that he holds out at the end. Verse 7. Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. Excuse me. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Each one of these letters ends with a promise. The unique one that he gives here is he takes us back to Eden. He takes us back to a time where there is no curse, where there is nobody trying to find ways not to to love God. And he says, to the one that conquers, to the one that perseveres, repentance is not I pray and I wait wait for God to do the work. Repentance is... I pray and I put in the work. I get to work. And he says, to the one that does that, to the one who conquers, to the one who shares in the victory that Jesus Christ has already done, the promise is this picture of intimacy with God. The thing that Adam and Eve lost in their disobedience, what Jesus is saying to everybody, that would remember Christian labor is not a substitute for Christian love, for everybody that would repent and seek God, praying for the intimacy that comes with him, he's saying those that do that will get it in its fullness. Jesus wants so much more from you than the work of your hands. He wants your heart. And he doesn't just want it from you. He wants that for you. That is the greatest gift that we can have to be fully satisfied in the finished work that our God has done for us. Let's pray that God would make that true of us as a church. Father, uh, we come to you right now and we ask that you uh, would make us a church that loves, a church that presents your love um, to a world, Father. Help us to be reminded that ah, the work of our hands, Father, you can do anything that you want to in this world without us. You've called us to so much more. Father, help us to be satisfied and content in you. And as we are, I pray that you would use us to show um, yourself to a world that's dying, to a world that's in desperate need of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.